as an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. But there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Kevin Van Ord, current writer at Larian Studios. So join us as we explore his journey. So today I'm joined by Kevin. How are you? I'm fantastic. How about you? Uh, going quite well. Uh, it's we've we've been back and forth for for a few weeks here trying to work this out, synchronizing time zones and all that sort of thing. You're yep. eight hours behind me, so um, it keeps things a little entertaining trying to find that sweet spot that's somewhat suitable for the both of us. And yep, we um, found so, it. And we've managed to find it. So, so thank you very much for for working with me on that. And we're we're here and ready to go. So. This is Dev Diary, a series where we talk to people in the development scene from all walks of the development scene. Uh, they share their stories, their experiences, and the journey that ultimately led up to this point. But Kevin, before we get to your experiences in the games industry, because it's not just contained to development as well, which is a really interesting facet when it comes to you and your career, before we even get to that, I'd like to kind of visit some of your first gaming experiences. Do you recall what the first game was that you play or uh, played or the first series of games that you played? Oh, gosh. Um... Probably, but keep in mind, I'm old, right? So, as we record this, I'm 48 years young, and so my gaming experiences are very, very simple from from the early times. So, the first games I remember No judgment here, don't worry about that. So, (laughs) we had, I mean, literally Pong is the first thing I ever really remember playing. Awesome. So, there were consoles that played nothing but Pong. And I think Magnavox made that. So yep. we had like a little Pong console and on either side, it didn't even really have controllers, I don't think. It just had a little wheel on both sides. And then when you played, one person just used the wheel on the right and one person used the wheel on the left. And then you played Pong. And that was that was kind of it. Um, and then it wasn't long before like the fir- the con- consoles were getting out not not modern consoles but like uh, console arcade games were yeah. were making their way into department stores and things and so we had a I grew up in a in a relatively small town in Pennsylvania and we had a a department store called James Way and in James Way there was a Space Invaders machine and a Missile Command machine and so That's- I would go there and and play those games <laughs> And clearly took a real liking to them? Yeah, I did take a real liking to them. And it wasn't long after that, the Atari 2600 came out, and, and the department store had, like, a, a display Atari in the back. Oh, yeah, and okay. So, yeah, and so you could go back and then just, like, play whatever games they had out that you could just plug in. And so I remember most of those games being, like, uh, I don't know, uh, one was Adventure. I don't know if you remember the Atari 2600 game Adventure um pretty lame by modern standards <laughs> played a few on the 2600 but i don't know if avenger was one of them sorry Aven- adventure adventure was one of them. that's that's, that's the, the name of it that's like that's as bad as it gets and of course combat was the name of the game that kind of came with the you know like it came with its own with a cartridge when you bought it like the default cartridge yeah. you know and so combat was one of the games on the default cartridge or it may have been the only game on the default cartridge and then 
after that, it was just like going to friends' houses because they would get Ataris and then play all their games. Yeah, and you that, kind of share the love amongst all you, yourself exactly, and all your friends. Exactly, and that's that's kind of how it started. So I, I grew up in the, to me, the heyday. And so by the time 1982, 1983 came around, I would have been like, you know, 10 and 11 and 12 years old. And, and that's that's when things were really exciting because we had like the local mall then opened up in Aladdin's Castle. Those were the days, you know, and then you'd go into the, you know, they'd have an arcade and it would be just full of machines and you'd get to play everything. And anything with a trackball was always my favorite. So That's fair. No, that's that's an enticing prospect uh, back then. And obviously there's a million and one different ways to kind of control things these days. But yeah, the, the trackball was a really cool idea. Loved the trackball. Really attractive at the time. Yeah, Millipede, Centipede, and a, and a typically forgotten game called Crystal Castles, which uh, if you don't know Crystal Castles, look it up. And uh, that was a great, yeah, great trackball game uh, where you control the little bear going around it. It's hard to explain picking up gems. And then uh, the first console type thing I owned wasn't actually a console. It was a Commodore VIC-20 was the very first uh, gaming machine I ever owned. And uh, And were there any particular titles that you latched onto there that really caught your interest? (laughs) Anything the, in particular, I should say? So I upgraded pretty quickly after that to a Commodore 64. <laughs> on, the, on the VIC-20, uh, Gorf was this game that I loved probably the most. And Gorf was this... It's hard, It was one of those games sort of like Tron, where there were like yeah, okay. four games in one. And one of them was like Galaxian. One of them was shooting a big ship. One of them was uh, a little bit like Tempest. Uh, and I forget... I think there was another one that I'm that I'm forgetting. But then the Commodore 64, I got a Commodore 64, and then one of the greatest games of all time was on the Commodore 64 called Paradroid. And oh, yes, I do know that one. Yeah, Paradroid is fantastic. It was the first game where I ever felt like, oh my god, I'm playing something really important and special. I guess like before that, it always felt like, oh, this is fun. But uh, it's not like Paradroid but is something. But I'll get experience. over it and I'll move on and that's, yeah. that's fine. But, but Paradroid felt like a whole experience, even though it's visually simple. Um, it just felt like there's a whole lot going on in my mind. Oh, and the old uh, Infocom Adventures also I played on the VIC-20. Um, so, you know, games like Zork and stuff like that. But my favorite was always this Infocom game called Ballyhoo, where you which took place in a circus and you were trying to solve a murder mystery in a circus. And that was always uh, a favorite of mine back when you just, uh, you know, everything was in text. Great stuff. Great yeah. stuff. Yeah. That, I mean, that that's, that's a really fascinating background there. Cause, uh, but where did the, where did platforms such as, I guess the things that a lot of people associate with uh, slightly more modern gaming. So, you know, when did the brands like Nintendo, Sega and those sorts, when did they all start to come into the mix? When did you first get exposed to them? So there was a there was a gap in gaming for me. So, you know, I we didn't have money and it was yep. incredible that I had a Commodore 64 in the first place. And so 1990 came and that was still all I really had. I mean, my my uncle had a a Nintendo uh an NES and that was, you know, that, the Atari, and then the Commodore stuff that I had. And, you know, I had a friend who had, like, a, an Amiga, eventually, that I would sometimes get to play on. But then there was a gap, because I went to college. And then there was a whole lot of stuff <laughs> that, that really doesn't belong in this podcast about, like, kind of my 
my college experience and kind of the years post my college experience. So there was a gap yeah, okay. where I didn't do anything. I didn't play anything really. Um, I never had, uh, was there a desire there and it was just a lack of opportunity or did you kind of just drift away from the, from the medium for a while? Some of it was just my focus had to be elsewhere. I didn't really have yep. uh, a lot of energy for, uh, for, for anything fun for, for quite a while. And then when I sort of dove back in, so I never had like an SNES or a Dreamcast um, or a PS1. So there's like this era or a Nintendo 64 until, until really late um, yeah okay so whereas for me the super nintendo era that was kind of what i was I, I caught just the end of the nes but i was mostly born and raised a super nintendo kid so yeah and so that that's kind of the era that i i ultimately i went back and tried to catch up on um and sometimes i'm still doing that um playing lots of games that i just missed in the day so for example i you know i've played most final fantasies by this point but i never played final fantasy 8 and so recently i downloaded final fantasy 8 hd and and i'm so i'm trying to get back into some things that i missed from that gap but then when i started getting back into games it was always pc first and so it really wasn't until ps2 xbox gamecube that I started buying consoles again and started getting into consoles again. Before that was sort of a grand PC era where I really started returning to games. And that would have been stuff like um, Baldur's Gate 1 and yeah. Diablo 1. And then eventually, you know, as time passed a little bit, you know, Baldur's Gate 2 came out. But Icewind Dale, which was always a huge favorite, and then Icewind Dale 2 came out uh, again game that now i have quite an attachment to called divine divinity yep uh morrowind and so on and so forth so there was a you know that obviously morrowind came a bit later than those games I just yeah mentioned. it was a bit further down the line uh, but, but but there is a there is a through line though between each of those titles that you've kind of mentioned there yeah and so that, that fantasy sort of exactly style, was that something that really in particular was a focus of yours and the, an attracting factor for you it did, and also just because that was sort of what was big at the time I started getting back into stuff. So, True. you know, Baldur's Gate was was big. And, and this wasn't a time where I was reading magazines quite yet. Eventually, then I subscribed to PC Gamer, and I started caring about stuff, like, really seriously. But at first, it really is one of those things where you go to the store, and some, for me, it would be either going to EB Games, um, or it would be going... At this stage, I was living in um, in the D.C. area, in, in the yep. Washington D.C. area, and so I would go to a place in uh, I think it was in um, in Herndon, Virginia, called Micro Center, and it was this huge computer store, kind of like a Best Buy, um, except much yeah, okay. better than that. Um, but we would you would go, and they would have their big PC gaming display shelf. This isn't this is before you could go online and just download whatever you wanted. Yeah, so before PC before the likes of Steam and and whatnot. Exactly. And so you'd go in and you'd see big boxes. And I remember I'd go and see these giant boxes of games, including Half-Life. And there was a, you know, a bunch of games that came out then that I have real fondness for, not just because of nostalgia, because it was, but because it was a time where things were a little bit weird and different in PC games. And so there were games made like... Uh, black and white there was a fantastic rpg that came from uh oh gosh was it ion storm called uh, anachronox oh yeah okay yeah another one love anachronox um you'd see games by shiny 
Entertainment, uh, one of the, the all-time PC gaming greats. They made games like uh, Sacrifice, and uh, there was a game called Messiah um, that I that you'd see very frequently on the shelf. And so it was just like a lot of these things. So, sometimes it just came down to, you know, the box art looks cool and the description on the back looks neat. And so I like that's how I got Dracon Order of the Flame, which is one of those great Psygnosis games. Psygnosis, another defunct uh, developer and publisher. So that's that sort of was my return. You know, I, I'm of course I'm naming games that came out within like a five year span, so it wasn't you know it's it's not like there was one moment, but this was sort of like the span where games really became important to me. And, and through this time, you and I did a little bit of trawling through your LinkedIn to get some of this information. You were working at Holiday Inn, uh, revenue manager there. You were an account representative as well. Uh, were they were they roles and jobs that you kind of uh, were, were shooting for in, in various capacities over the journey? Or were you still just trying to discover at some point what it is that you wanted to do? I mean, Somewhere through that period, did you realize that games need want you wanted games to be your day-to-day so you just want to sometimes you just want to survive and yet uh there was there was a time when you know you just need a job and that's how i got into hotels it's just i needed a job um i i'd been studying to be a concert violinist and uh, a music composer oh and then and in college and that's that's what i was that's what my my end game had always been when i was young and unfortunately, that got waylaid by health issues uh, during and after college. And, and so by the time I was really recovering, um, it wasn't, I wasn't in a place where I could like pursue dreams in that moment, right? You just need a job. You need to live. You need to get by. Yeah, exactly. And so I, uh, you know, I got a job as a desk clerk in a hotel. And that sort of started the, the hotel journey because I was really good at it, right? I mean... It's not like it was something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life, but you know, you wanted, you know, I wanted to do well, and uh, and I did. So I was I was good at dealing with people. I was good at dealing with computers, and so you know, eventually I just worked my way up until I was uh, in management, and uh, that was that was sort of what happened there. But the thing about hotels is that they never close. <laughs> and yeah, it's kind of unrelenting i'd imagine yeah it's very unrelenting to work in hotels so i i did that for about five years and eventually i was a reven- you know i was a revenue manager um for a really large hotel and i was unhappy at this stage um, because you know it's just it really is unrelenting you know you get at this time you know you'd get a you know you'd get a page is, is how they'd get in touch with me. And, you, you know, I just get a page. Oh, fun. Yeah, I just get a page <laughs> in the middle of the night. Suddenly my beeper would be going off at 2 a.m. because the night auditor needed help because, you know, I don't know, the police were there about something. <laughs> so so that would be like, and that was, that was you know, daily, weekly, monthly. You know, you just never know what was going to happen. Um, and I got tired yeah, of when that. it's puncturing your off time, that's probably not the most exciting yeah. prospect for someone. But there's there's no... You know, when you work in hotels at that, at that level, there's no getting away from your job. You know, you're always kind of on call in a certain sense, or at least then. Who's to say yeah. what, what it's like out there now? But uh, but eventually I got a job. Um, somebody that I'd worked with uh, worked for a company that did finance for nursing homes, which sounds like a very niche thing, and it is. But I was also very good at that. But through all this time, I'd been sort of a fan of GameSpot, right? And uh, yes. by that time, I was really... 
you know, really back into games, and I was interested in games, and I read GameSpot Daily, and I really admired the people that worked there in, in front-facing positions. You know, I looked up to people like Greg Kasavin and Jeff Gersman and Ryan Davis and Alex Navarro. And it was all- a fantastic team. I was I was really devouring their content in the same window of time that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean... That was, GameSpot was my go-to place. And they were great. And then I was a member of the community, and then I became a moderator in that community. And, and eventually, you know, that was a time where forums really were something um, besides just hate-filled, festering uh, hellholes. Not not to say that every community is like that. But, uh, you know, there, there definitely was a, a feeling of camaraderie um, during that time in the GameSpot forums. And I made lots of friends that way. And I wrote lots of user reviews and moderated the forums. And eventually it just became clear, hey, I think I'd like to be maybe a, you know, do something part with of video games. Game. Right. You know, like I want to write about video games. So I never, at that point, I never dreamed that I'd be making video games. It was just, it really was about, I want to write about video games, and that's where I want to do it. And then somehow that happened. <laughs> it was, it was, it was pretty miraculous. Like, I just, eventually, like, I wrote lots of user reviews. The staff knew, knew me. Um, the community knew me. And eventually, this position came open for revenue, ma- or not, <laughs> I'm talking about other jobs again. Yeah, um, we're, we're going back again. <laughs> <laughs> a position came open for a tournament coordinator, and yeah, okay. I got a call out of the blue. At this point, I was living in uh, Columbia, Maryland. Yep. And I got this call out of the blue. This would have been 2006. I got this call out of the blue from Jody Robinson, who was uh, one of the community managers, along with Bethany Messmilla at GameSpot. And she's like, so we have this position opening up for a tournament coordinator, and we think you'd be a perfect fit. Would you like to fly out and interview? And it's like, oh, okay, let's do it. So I did. I went out, and uh, they flew me out, and I did an interview. It was the coolest interview I've ever done because it seems like they'd are it seemed like they'd already made up their mind, and they were trying to sell themselves to me, which they didn't have to do. And yeah, you were you were in, but did did you play hard to get then, just to to lap it up and? You know, no, that's not that's not my style at all. No, that's not my <laughs> style at all. Um, so it was, but it was a lot of fun. It was my first time in San Francisco, um, and it was just it was great. And they they hired me, and so then I just sort of disrupted my life and moved across the country in uh, the second biggest move I'd ever made in my life yeah we'll get to that biggest <laughs> one uh, a little bit down the line yeah but, uh you you had a fairly long stay at GameSpot, and i mean i still you know quite clearly remember i, I didn't realize it was 2006 until i until i did some digging of the yeah. years th- those kind of years are a bit of a blur for me but i did consume a lot of GameSpot content and i would see you feature prominently often um one thing, without necessarily diving too much into the the nitty gritties of it, because it's been, it's been played out a lot over the journey. Sure. You arrived in two thousand six, and two thousand seven was the <laughs> the great Jeff uh, Kane and Lynch controversy. Now yeah, we don't yeah. necessarily need to dive into yeah the finer details of that. I don't. It's been well worn out, I would say, and I'm sure you're probably inclined to agree. But um, what was that like for you to to still be? quite fresh at this particular point and then yeah. for something like that to kind of pop up was that was that really intimidating did you start to question or did i make the right choice was there any sort of doubt at all that popped into your mind off the back of that because of, of Gamespot was the center of attention for quite some time that's oh yeah of of course uh so 
from my per- things were really interesting from my perspective and horrifying from my perspective for a lot of reasons. Uh, so I was I had started as coordinated uh, as tournament coordinator, and it eventually not eventually but fairly quickly, I joined the editorial team as a reviewer. Which was, you know, that was the dream, right? That had always been the dream. I wanted, that's what I wanted to do. And, and uh, so I was fairly new to the editorial team. I was over there in sort of, we, you know, over there in the corner of the editorial room, kind of doing my thing. I'm, I don't remember what I was playing, but I think I was playing Lair or something. I don't even remember. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah right. I, I don't even remember. <laughs> Like, I remember playing lots of Lair in that corner. Maybe that's just a mixed memory. But uh, So I was kind of doing both things at once at that stage. I was doing editorial work, but I was also doing uh, tournament stuff. And just that that morning, this... You know, I didn't realize what was going on. I was just sitting over there in my corner uh, working. And then Jeff walked up and said, well, I... You know, basically to say goodbye. And I just... Like my jaw dropped. I didn't understand. I didn't really know what was going on. Although had I, it, had anything gone on during the day at that point that raised red flags with you? Things seemed odd at all. Or? No, this was the morning, and yeah, okay. I was, you know, like I I was still fairly new, and so I wasn't one of the people that you know the editor. You know, it, it wasn't like I was. I wasn't one of the guys. I guess yeah, and you're I, not in the know yet. Yeah, and I and you know I say guys because there weren't you know the the, the editorial team really was all men at that yeah. point, and uh, so I you know my my jaw just sort of hit the floor. I didn't know it was coming. Um, there, I mean, we'd known what was going on about you know with with Kane and Lynch that there'd been some you know hubbub around um, editing review and that uh perhaps the you know the the pr for the game wasn't happy and that therefore management wasn't necessarily happy and i'd known i'd known some some stuff about that but what i said here is basically all i really did know at that stage and then uh that you know the whole thing just dropped and then all hell sort of broke loose for a while because it was huge you know, in gaming news, and, you know, in addition, I sort of was missing, you know, somebody that I'd seen as a mentor, and I felt sort of alone anyway, and then when people started leaving to, because of course everybody was basically buddies at that point, except me, I wasn't one of the buddies, and so the buddies sort of left to, to start Giant Bomb. Which, which weirdly enough, would then come back into the fold many years later. Um, yeah, that was a strange cyclical thing. There, that that was weird that's... at the time too. But uh, I guess that that you know, at this point in the in the story, you know, who who, no way I you know nobody could have foreseen something like that. All I know is that at that point, everybody started jumping ship, and I didn't have that luxury because I changed my entire life. Um, and I, yeah, you I, kind of couldn't afford to take an extra risk. Yeah, where was I? You where had. was I going to go? You know, you, you, you know. I, I, sometimes it's really easy to say, you know, take a stand, et cetera, et cetera. But for a person that's that's in the middle of of the, you know, of a mess, you know, living, you know, essentially paycheck to paycheck. What does that, you know, what does that mean for somebody like that? I can't, you know, I, I'm in a new place. What am I? What am I going to do? Um, Plus, I, I, I had to believe that something good could come out of it. 
And eventually something, you know, something did, something good did come out of that. Giant Bomb was created, um, and Giant Bomb's great. And, so, as, <laughs> as you mentioned before, they kind of came back into yeah, the family. They did, uh, yes. You, you were at, at GameSpot from 2006 to 2015, so uh, you you thrived in, uh, in, in the company. There's plenty of good that ultimately came out of the whole situation. Um, as ugly as it might have been for a brief period there, there was there was a lot of good that came out of it. Did you did you find that there was a bit of a, a push and a pull from you know, other parties trying to draw you to come one way or to try and retain you? Was, was there any of that sort of stuff? Or, no, no, again because not you're really. the new guy, you're just I, I he'll take care of himself. I think GameSpot itself would have been like, okay, bye. If I would have left, I mean, I mean, it's not quite that bad, right? Like, uh, but I don't, you know, I, I certainly wasn't management's first concern at that stage. Um, yeah. I mean, they certainly wanted to keep staff. They didn't want to keep uh, hemorrhaging staff. But, uh, you know, at that point, I just stuck around because I'd worked really hard, or at least it feels like I'd worked really hard to get where I was at that point. It was certainly the, you know, the dream I, I still wanted to kind of live out that dream if I could. Um, but then with everything gone haywire, I didn't know what was going to happen next. So yeah, it was, it was a very stressful time. Um, one of the worst parts about it actually would be then conspiracy theories would come up regarding, you know, it's like, Oh, you know, because of course new staff had to be hired. And so new staff started to come along and, and then there were, you know, conspiracy theories about, you know, that I'd, I'd been working to push out Jeff or something like that. And it's like, Oh my God. (laughs) That's so far out outside of the realm of anything that I that I would or could do as if I'd had. But the reality is that you're one of the established crew, so it makes more sense for you to to climb the pile a little bit quicker because you already understand sure. to an extent the ins and outs of the organization. I mean, I was just the new guy, and so I was just you know I was one of the people remaining. Um, and yep. you know, eventually some people left that that didn't go to Giant Bomb, obviously that. Uh, you know, but it, but I don't know. It, it, at some point, I was like, well, I'm going to see if I can make some lemonade out of these lemons if i can and hopefully i i did some of that event you know i did eventually create some work that i was really proud of when i was at GameSpot, and uh, hopefully that's you know that helped uh some change some people's lives to you know to see uh i don't know i, I get i get uh, messages still from people who are like you know it was really important to me to see a gay man out there writing this stuff and, and somebody, you know, on video and that meant a lot to me. And so I still get messages like that. And so that stuff does mean a lot. So hopefully it was all worth it uh, to stick around. Yeah. I mean, end. like that, I think all of it, um, it's, you put together some fantastic work uh, and it was something that like I'd, I'd regularly consume. Like if I saw your name attached, I would more often than not go and have a look because I, I, I trusted you and what you would put out. And I, I, I just, yeah, everything really clicked. How did you go? Because obviously you came on as a writer at first, but through that period of 2006 to 2015, and obviously even in the years since, the, the gaming industry and the, the media, the content creation side of things has really developed and changed a lot. Yeah. How did you go adjusting to the many changes that kind of came as a result of that? And Airgamespot was doing a bit of video anyway, um, but obviously things, the, the ratio started to shift I guess, over the journey in terms of your output, in terms of the company's output. How did you go adjusting to all that? I, I, I don't know that I did necessarily. Okay. You, you just, you just sort of go with the flow, right? Like I wasn't, you know, the, 
the only thing that I ultimately was ever in charge of was was reviews. Eventually, I became reviews editor, but I never wanted to to rise up any further that ladder, right? I, I wanted to keep writing reviews. That was the thing. That was my thing. That was and that was always the thing. And uh, so you know you you start doing more video, and video was always a part of it from the time I started. Um, it was just a matter of, you know, as, as people came in and they started doing more video for this and more video for that, you just do it, right? You know, somebody says, okay, we're going to do a video for this, and then you just do it. And so that was always, yeah, so that was always kind of my my part in that. I, I never was really a decision maker for, for uh, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Um, it was really just going with the flow and uh, having as much fun with it as I could. Yeah, that's that, that's fantastic. Um, I mean, you had your passion, the, the review writing side of it, and you you stuck to it. And I think I think that's fantastic because it's it would be easy to, I don't know, maybe see dollar signs or to let, let some maybe external pressure even push people into. And you see this in various organisations, gaming related or not, that there's there's external forces being you know, pushed upon people and that encourage, like they get encouraged as a result to maybe pursue things that they wouldn't have done of their own accord. So the fact that you kind of stuck to your guns and, and you had this passion for the uh, reviews, you got that uh, reviews editor role and you were happy to hang on to that and be, you were satisfied and fulfilled from that. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was the thing I wanted to do. And, and my feeling at the time was I wanted it to be about the games. I didn't really want it to be about me. And, and here's the thing. Like I'm not a personality. That's the other part of it. Is I never, I never pushed for being a big part of that because I'm not a personality. I'm not interesting. I'm no, I'm no Jeff Gersman or Alex Navarro or you know I'm. I mean, I'm, I think you're selling yourself a little bit short. <laughs> but there, 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 there's a reason why that I, why I reached out to get you on the show. You've absolutely a personality with some really fascinating things to say. Is, but I, but I do understand what you're getting. But it's at, really but. weird. Like, but but I don't. You know, I'm not like, uh, I don't know, I'm not hip with the kids or whatever. You know, God, that sounds awful coming out of my mouth. But uh, (laughs) I'm not, I'm not, you know, my, you know, I'm I'm a much different kind of person than usually what you see if you turn on. uh, Certainly if you go to some YouTube gaming channel or go to Twitch or somebody and watch somebody playing games. Um, anybody that's popular. There's a lot of energy. It's a lot of energy. A... Anybody that's popular isn't going to be somebody like me, typically. You know, I'm not somebody who breaks out because I'm, you know, because I'm wacky or because I'm interesting in the kind of way that, you know, the giant bomb guys are interesting or, or that yeah. sort of thing. You know, it's just, I'm, I'm, I'm different than that. I'm, I'm more low key. I'm more laid back. And, uh, I, I don't know that I'm smart, but I'm I'm sort of more intellectual about this stuff, and 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 uh, that's that's not something that really that really draws people <laughs> to video. So I, I I did what I could, and I did have a lot of fun, and I believed in everything that I did that ended up being on video, and I'm glad that people like a lot of the stuff that I did. But I was I was never somebody who could be, you know. Uh, I don't know. I, I was never going to be, you know, a big gaming personality. Yeah. So, so you know, maybe a, a, a good, a, a great critic is what I wanted to be. I didn't want to be a great, uh, you know, a great streamer or a great, uh, you know, video. Uh, yeah, host subject. of some sort. Yeah, yeah. like the, you know, I, I found the place that I wanted to be, and all the other stuff was sort of secondary. 
did you have a, you know with with your focus being purely on reviews did you do you still have a particular review that you you consider to be your your best work something that you're the most proud of so is there one that really stands out there are a couple that i really like even now um now after i left gamespot i actually did a little freelancing for them uh right before i moved out here with with uh the larian job um so after i wasn't an employee i still managed to to get a few reviews out there as a freelance basis and uh my very i think this was my final review for gamespot was journey on the ps4 Oh, nice. And I hadn't written the original Journey review, which was a very good review, but I had a lot of feelings about Journey, one of my favorite games of all time. Um, and I'm really, really proud that if I'm going to leave, you know, leave a lasting impre- review impression, that that was the one that I got to leave, I guess. Um, yeah, I can appreciate that. Yeah, before that... Especially, especially with a game like that, that's it's so powerful in so many ways to be able to express yourself... Um, in written or video form, I might add, uh, yeah. to the world, and you're talking about a game like that would be, yeah, it'd be a great way to to kind of cap things off, for want of a better phrase. It felt good, and I, I uh, at that point, it felt like I'd reached a point where I wish my writing had been the entire time, if that makes sense. And it was so that was the bummer part. It felt like finally you reached the top of your game, and then you say goodbye. Um, so that was that was kind of the, the the worst part of it. But there are some reviews before that that I really look back fondly on and think, you know, I did pretty okay with this. The first time I remember feeling really good about a review was Condemned Two. A lot of people give oh, okay. us a hard time over the video review for that because uh, Jim Mayberry, who is the video producer on that and one of my favorite people of all time, uh, he uh, he wanted to do something a little bit different. And so we did this really weird thing with the Condemned 2 video review showing me in a pig mask and things like that. Like trying to, <laughs> trying to, trying to use the game Glam as kind of our spring. Yeah, exactly. Use the game as our springboard. And so that was a lot of fun. But it was the written review. It was the first time I'd written a review that I thought, oh, this is actually pretty something here. You know? <laughs> so, and, and that was when I started trying to, you know, every time I'd, I'd write something, try to up my game a little bit in some way, at least if it was a game worth upping your game for. And uh, I think Bloodborne is one of those reviews that I look back really fondly on, um, that I'm really happy about. Um, some of the lower scoring games were were actually a lot of fun to write. I don't know that I'm necessarily uh, happy that I played a game called Stalin vs. Martians, but I think I, I wrote yeah, about it not. pretty okay. Um, even though that was a, I gave that a one or a one point five. No, I gave that a one point five. I gave that a one point five. Um, I think one of a, I I gave maybe three games uh, a one range score, maybe three or four games a one range score. Um, before that, th- I mean, there was a time when I started a game spot where everything was at, uh, you know, the, everything was like, uh, you know, one all the way up to ten, and all the Point one increments in between yeah the the hundred point yeah hundred point system so i think i might have been the first person at GameSpot to give a game a 1.0 but i don't know for sure but i think i think i might have been because eventually we got to the 0.5 system and i think i might have been the first person to give out just a sheer 1.0 i don't remember <laughs> but I don't remember Big Rigs, what exactly what Big Rigs got. It, it might have been a 1.0 uh, 
So I don't remember for and he sure. Is out there? Go go and de- uh, dig it go, up go and uh, tighten it away. Us, right? Yeah, please, please let me know if we, what the first 1.0 at Gamespot was. But uh, that was actually one of my first experiences. By the way, at Gamespot was uh, was uh, there was a video that was done uh, of various people on the team playing big rigs for the first time because yeah. Al- Alex had uh, done the review. And so that was one of the first videos I remember ever doing for GameSpot was actually playing Big Rigs uh, for this for this video so that they could basically get first reactions of all of us playing <laughs> Big Rigs for the first time. And just watching the eyes exploding, the jaws hitting the floor. Yeah, and, yeah pretty and... much. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's fantastic. And like I said for uh, listeners, if, if you want to go and do a bit of digging for us, please feel feel free. There's no... We'd love to. We'd love to know whether that was in fact the first 1.0 on the site. But uh, at what point did there? What was there an itch to actually get into the development side of things? Was it just the the kind of ending of one phase of your life and the decision to kind of pursue something else? How did the how did the decision to explore the development side uh, scene actually begin for you? I mean, that was that's basically it, right? Eventually, you come to a point where you feel like you're you've exhausted what you're doing for whatever reason. And I'd gotten to the point where for various reasons, I just felt like it was time to move on. And a lot of people that are in games writing and games journalism move on to doing something else in games. But a lot of times it's usually, you know, most of the time I'd say even it's, it's a PR kind of role um, or, or, or yeah, something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, you, or, or marketing, or, or people that, that uh, join, I don't want to say non-creative, because that's super unfair, because those are all creative endeavors. Um, but oh, absolutely. something that the public doesn't see necessarily is like the, the part of making games where you're actually making the game. And I really wanted to be in design somehow. And I thought, well, I'd probably be an okay writer. Right. So, I mean, I've been writing this stuff all along, so maybe I could write something else that's like this. But I wasn't stuck on that idea. It's just this is, you know, I wanted to do something creative with games. And so let's let's strike out and see what what I can do. And so I did. So, so obviously, yeah, that that kind of end of one era, beginning of the next. Did you did you feel that end coming for a while? Or did you just have a moment? Was there just this epiphany one day, or you woke up one day? And, I think I think I need to do something different now. Was, or did you feel it really coming for a while? That was a process. It, it it definitely wasn't a wake up one day and suddenly it's just like, you know, a light bulb goes on over my head. Um, it was it was more like, you know. I was at GameSpot for nine years, right? And and eventually it just comes time where you feel like, okay, I've done basically what I can do. You know, you also feel the way the industry is swaying in one way or another. Yeah. And, and, and I had this feeling like, I, I don't think that this is going to be a place for somebody like me soon. You know, this is getting so much about about the personalities and so much about a different kind of of content and I don't think it's the kind of content that I excel at but I think I could excel at at making people in video games say words um, or creating stories yeah, I mean, that can be told or, or making designs that can that can play in an interesting way yeah I mean the the writing was the basis of your career for nine years so you'd like to think in many respects that there's some degree of transferable skill there you, 
you would hope, and, and sometimes people think that that's the case for them, and then it, it doesn't necessarily transfer in, in, in a direct way. Luckily, I don't know, there's something about being around games for a long time that I don't think playing a lot of games makes you a good designer, but I think that playing games critically is a good part of, of starting you on a path like that. And yeah, for sure. at this point, I can't play a video game uncritically, if that makes sense. Like, you know, it's not like I'm... You just can't help yourself. Yeah, I can't help myself. It's 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 just one of those things where, you know, I see everything. And, uh, you know, you, you, I, I love so much stuff, but that, that thing in my brain, I don't think is ever going to turn off now. Where it's just always thinking of games in a certain way. Um, which doesn't mean I'm not having fun in fact it's it's the opposite of that i feel like you know i have more fun because i because there's just so much more engagement in my brain uh i think because yeah of I'm, I'm feeling a little bit the same as you actually currently these days because uh we are in this with covid kind of doing what it's doing to 2020 at the moment we've obviously seen some delays to various titles um and i've had, there's just been this weird we're currently in at this weird block of time where there hasn't really been anything uh, knew that I've needed to review or anything like that for for our site. So I've been able to spend a little bit of time, God forbid, playing games for myself and for my for my own enjoyment. But I've caught myself out doing exactly what you just described, which has been kind of casting that critical eye over them at the same time. And I, I I've you know tossed and turned a little bit. Like, am I wrong for doing this, or is this is this just how I'm hardwired now? Can I can I undo this? Do I want to undo this? Um, and I've similar to what you just described. I've kind of landed on that. Uh, no, look, I'm I'm deriving enjoyment from kind of picking picking the teeth out of this thing and trying to explore the oh that's how they did that and you know those sort of little things I've just been doing over the course of the last let's say probably month to month and a half specifically. I I've been really getting a lot of enjoyment from that. Yeah, I I think it's a really fun thing to do actually. Like I really like. I mean, in the moment, I'm just enjoying it in the moment. But then I really like. I really like taking the time to, for the, for the things that I loved or the things that I didn't quite love, I like taking the time to think about what is it that makes me love this versus uh, this other thing over here that I didn't love so much. What is it about this that makes this cooler to me than this? And I I really like thinking about games that way, and it's all because it's also something that I can learn from and something that that can be. You know that can make its way to you know whatever I'm working on, you know whatever game I'm working on at the time. So yeah, I play a lot of stuff, and uh, I don't I don't think you know, I th- I think that stuff you know leaks into what you find good and what you find bad, and therefore what you want to what you want to avoid or what you want to try. Yeah, I I hundred percent agree with you there, and I'm glad I kind of well we've seems to have landed in a similar sort of headspace when it comes to how we approach the games whether we're reviewing them or not so I'm I'm glad I'm not the only one thinking that way and that we've been able to bond over that particular perspective so getting into the development scene itself um were were you were you throwing your name around at different studios or were you just like was there a particular circumstance that something just fell into your lap how how did that first opportunity actually emerge i mean it really is like finding a job because that's what it is <laughs> i don't know why i said yeah. it that way but it but it comes down to yeah now you're just out there looking for a job and uh so i started i started kind of putting feelers out and i put in you know you just apply in certain places and hope that your cover letter and uh the, your body of work 
Um, you know, I put together a portfolio on a portfolio site, and you just you hope that this stuff lands in some way. And I got lucky at some point because it did land um, in in a couple different ways. One is I started working for Tryon Worlds on, yep. on their uh, their localization team. Yeah, so there was a uh, Davillion Atlas reactor. I've also got listed as well. Is that correct? Yeah. So I so the very first time that I was really working on a game was for Davillion, which is uh, an MMO that uh, Tryon Worlds was uh, localizing, and so I worked as an editor, basically uh, basically taking all the raw text that would come from translation and then turning it into a story, essentially. And it was a lot of fun. It's also really, it was also under the gun because there, you know, there were there were hard deadlines. And this was a contract job. I was not uh, a full time employee at Tryon Worlds. But when I got the offer, um, it was just one of those things where I'm taking it. This is my this is my way in. You know, yeah, foot in the door. Yeah, and it's like I, I if I'm good at this, maybe I can turn this into something. And I, I like to think that I was good at it. Um, we, we turned and you have turned it in something. Yeah, too. I did. Uh, we, we did, and I think we did a pretty good, pretty good job with the Davillion writing, considering the amount of time. Um, it was basically me and another, uh, another editor, and I think that we, we, uh, we, we turned that story into, into something good, um, as best we could in that in the the few months that we had to basically write an entire game. If that makes sense, and no, no, uh, no, no I, I do understand. Yeah, yeah. So, so it worked out really well. But uh, as that was coming to an end, I really, I wanted to see if there was something else. And at the time, uh, Tryon was uh, making this game. There was a small team making a game called Alice Reactor, and poor Alice Reactor never got the love that it deserved because that game was actually amazing. And I don't, I can, I can. I say that out of all sincerity. That game was amazing. It was basically like taking a hero shooter like Overwatch and mixing it with XCOM and it was it was fantastic. And it was my first designer job. Um, I, I talked with uh, the guys. A lot of the people that were there were, were people that had worked on uh, the MMO Rift, the game that really put yep. Tryon Worlds on the map. Um, and some of the Rift people and some other people were working on Atlas Reactor, um, something that was really new for for this team. I mean, they had Rift and they had Trove and they localized some stuff like, you know, like Archage and things like that. But this was this was really something new and different. And I was really excited when they brought me on, even though I was new and totally green. And we would go into these morning scrum meetings, and I wouldn't know what to say. I just felt like I was in a... There was a time where I felt really in over my head. And, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, but I was I was brought on as a content designer, and probably my greatest achievement while I was doing that was uh, creating the game's second map. And that was that was actually a lot of fun. Like, uh, basically, this a second map needed to be done, because in, in alpha and pre-alpha state, it was only one map, you know, kind of in that Dota two way where there was, you know, this is just yeah, the understood. only map yep, you yep, on. one. And so, you know, it was time, you know, creating a new map. And so several of us, uh, you know, made attempts at making a map and my map was chosen. And that was, that was super fun and fantastic. It felt like, Oh, maybe I am actually good at this and, and can do this. 
and that was which would be important to you because again up to this point you've done uh, you've written four games you've written about games but design is a whole other kettle of yeah, fish design is a whole other you've thing. successfully made that jump so that's yeah. that's fantastic so between that i so i made a map and that was my that was my greatest triumph i i left before a piece of art ever made it into that map so everything i knew about that map was basically gray blocks and uh power-ups and uh gray you know gray cover spots and things like that so i never i never got to see it with with art before i left the first time i ever saw that map played was incredible i wanted to say i helped make this it was so neat um it's sadly so I, you can obviously still see a lot of the DNA of your initial intent and design there still shows. Yeah, I mean the, the map product. was the same. It was just you know now it now it actually takes place in a in a in an environment that looks like a real place as opposed to a yeah. bunch of gray. And uh, I don't know for people interested out there, you, if if you can go out there and, and see what the process of level design. I think a lot of people talk about level design, and what they really mean is environment design and decoration. Um, but level design is a whole other kettle of fish, um, as people that are old might say. But uh, uh, well, I mean, I said it just before, so you just aged <laughs> oh, me. Did oh, did I? Oh, uh, yeah. So, so, uh, so level design is basically, you know, the, you know, the the map itself, like where, you know, how you're moving through the space and what the space looks like, and and all of the basics. I mean. Take out all the decoration and just just pretend everything is is gray blobs and blocks and stuff, and that's 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 where <laughs> level design really sits. And that that was total fun. And at the same time, I started working uh, thanks to Rich Siegel and the other the other people at Cleaversoft. Um, I was brought on on a contract basis to help make a fantastic little game called Earth Knight. Yeah. Yeah. And Earth Knight was a lot of fun to work on. Um, I also did... I was doing level design for that. Um, or as I, we would call it, chunk design. The way Earth Knight... Earth Knight is great. You should go out and play it. It's on PC. It's on PS4. It's on Apple Arcade. You should go play it. No, I can it. attest to that. It is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I do agree. It was really fun to, to, to help make that game. I made a whole bunch of levels for it. The way the game essentially works is that, you know, mini... Basically, every level you play is actually three mini levels uh, glued together, uh, and it's and they're put together in a in a sort of more or less uh, procedural way. And so, you're not, you know, you will, you know, obviously get the same, you know, play the same thing again eventually. But the way we yeah, did you it, you start to spot the DNA in, in yeah, there after a while. Yeah. But. So, but it, but it was neat because it was a great combination of designed and procedural mixed together and what i think a really successful way like one of the tough parts about something that's totally procedural is that it can feel random or it can feel uh in a weird way it can feel almost uh too uh too predictable which is which seems strange right it's supposed to be procedural it's not supposed to be predictable but i think a lot of procedural games end up feeling very predictable because you're still working with the same the same blocks constraints yeah so if if you dump a whole bunch of lego bricks on the ground but they're all just you know square bricks um then eventually you're you're going to run out of tricks 
right? If, yeah, if you, no, if you have like yeah, five, five Lego bricks, you only put them together it. in so many ways, right? So, but I yeah. think Earth Knight did it in a really awesome, special way, and the the tools that we got that that had been put together for me to, to create those levels were just amazing. It made it so easy. So we worked in Unity, um, but by the time the game came to me, you know tools had been created in unity for me to be able to just go in and create levels super easily and then just uh you know create levels plug in numbers and then a lot of a lot of that development for me was just playing stuff over and over and putting things into exactly the right place because what you want is for players to find a rhythm and a lot of that is just playing it over and over and over again and tweaking the placement of this just so so that you know that players are going to be able to find their rhythm and really have a lot of fun with what they're doing. And that was a riot. Um, but then I got a job. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a job at Larian Studios. Which... Yeah, so how did that actually emerge? And also, I guess just before we before we get to that, yeah. given the, the experience on the other side of the fence in the, the game's media and commentary side of things, at this point here, had you, had you started to feel like you belonged? Uh, you, you'd engaged in a few different disciplines within the game design and development scene at this particular stage, obviously some of it leaning on your writing experiences, but did you feel like now that you'd experienced a few different aspects of the industry, far from all, of course, but that you were starting to feel like you belonged? Yeah, I was. Um, at very least, I felt like, you know, I'd, I'd gone to it with something to to prove to say hey i can do this and then i to myself in particular and then i did prove to myself hey i I can do this you know maybe this maybe this really is something that i can do and uh you know in the meanwhile of course this and because this was all contract right like the contract at, at tryon was up and there was a hiring freeze while i was there and so what that meant was that um no new people would be hired and anybody that's on contract would not be renewed so I, my contract was not renewed, and I had to say goodbye to Tryon and all of the incredible people that worked there, um, including Will Cook, who was the lead designer on Alice Reactor, and who really uh, took a chance on me, and uh, hopefully it paid off. So working on, on Earth Knight was a lot of fun, but again, I needed something that could you know the security security pay bills and things like that and and uh so i was still out there looking for stuff and i was applying for things and i would get some some responses um but uh at some point i sent a message and it was actually over twitter to okay. to sven vinka who is the you know basically the head honcho at larian studios um we had done interviews before we'd had dinner when they came to gamescom um so i knew i knew sven in a in a friendly way and you know obviously i i loved all of larian's work um up to that stage um well we won't talk about divinity to uh ego draconis and those things (laughs) so we'll, we'll get to that probably a little bit later but uh oh sure i i freaking loved larian and Divinity Original Sin, I'd reviewed it when I was at GameSpot, and I had fought really hard 
to uh, name that game RPG of the Year that year. It was the same year that Dragon Dragon Age Inquisition came out. Another game that I loved, but I really fought hard, and eventually, uh, I don't think I really succeeded at <laughs> convincing. It did win, I think, our PC Game of the Year, but uh, I I never really was able to convince the whole team that it deserved the uh, the RPG of the Year award that year, which was sad. But it was my. I can't, I- Sorry, <laughs> I can't help but wa- I can't help but wonder if now, in retrospect, maybe people would have a slightly different opinion. Not that uh, again, not that Inquisition is a bad game in any way, shape, or form. In fact, it's fantastic. But I wonder. Oh if no, I love that game. The 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 maybe the new IP versus established IP argument that will often come up, and maybe just there was that comforting layer that comes with Dragon Age and Bioware and people's experiences with the company and the franchise that maybe gave it that slight edge sure. There's also you couldn't the, quite win people over. Yeah, there's also the console versus PC thing because Divinity Original Let's Sin was a, was a PC-only title. And so that, that can kind of affect things too because, you know, a lot of times we're, you know, in a Game of the Year discussion, you're talking about a whole team of people who uh, have played games and, and if it doesn't land on a, a platform that, that they you know, might have at home or, you know, and, or hit some kind of sweet spot for something that they would want to play in general anyway, you know, so it makes it that much harder. It makes it that much harder. So you got to go in there and you got to really argue. Um, I argued for a lot of things at GameSpot uh, that I believed in, in those discussions. But anyway, that's, that's for another day. I think, (laughs) um, needless to say, I, I loved original sin and, uh, and Larian in general. And so I just, you know, you take the plunge when you're looking for a job. Sometimes you just uh, you you put out all the feelers you can to see what will happen. And, and I sent a message to Sven saying, you know, my time at Tryon is up, and uh, I'm out there willing to to lend you my talents if it's if it's something that seems to have a place at Larian. And so I says, okay, let's talk. And yeah, I, I assume writing that understanding that uh, for this to happen, you're packing up and moving halfway across the globe. Oh yes, of course. But at that point, you know, you're you're ready. And here's something that I found that was interesting. Everybody that was interested was always a European, uh, always a European developer. Never anybody yeah, in okay. the U.S. Um, so I had other people that would that would respond, and I, you know, I did uh, writing tests and things like that. But it was never. Uh, and other and design tests, but it was never a, a, a U.S. developer. It was always a European developer, and I don't know if there's any meaning in that or not. Um, but it was it was my experience anyway, and so I I made my peace with thinking you know I you know I'd have to be willing to move halfway across the world if that's what it takes, and I absolutely was. Like, uh, did you toss and turn over that for a while? No. <laughs> oh, okay. No hesitation. No, at all. no, hesi- awesome. no hesitation at all. Yeah, I, I was like, if this, if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. You know, I made one big, you know, you know, I, I made that one big decision in my life to move across the country before. Who's to say I can't move across the world? And this is funny coming from me because I'm somebody who likes comfort and structure, and I, you know, my my idea of a fun day is to stay home. <laughs> So I'm not, and you lose a, you lose a little bit of that when you pack up and move halfway across the globe yeah, and try and reset everything again. Yeah, I don't see myself as particularly adventurous. I guess is what I'm saying. And then so uh, you, you'd think it was like, like, really, you're willing to take an adventure? Yeah, I was absolutely ready. And uh, so we, so Sven and I talked on on Skype, and amazingly, it was just like, yeah, let's do it. Like it was it. 
it was as simple as that incredible um it's like you know and how what a what a privilege and, and i nothing the, the the all the privilege wrapped up into that never escapes me any day that i think about it um and i'm and i'm really really grateful that that sven took that that chance on me so yeah i uh but just because he was like okay let's do it doesn't mean that it was going to happen because there's this whole other process when it comes to moving to another country um for for oh yeah that aren't even related to the studio or yourself individually they're exactly bigger picture things involving government bodies and all those sorts of things which and, never make things easy and lots of money it costs a lot of money just to try and get a visa with no guarantee that it's going to happen uh so but it did uh everything sort of worked out i i it happened quickly i got it all under control very quickly and moved across the world and so i moved from san francisco to ghent belgium and here i am and since that time you've worked on uh some pretty cool projects or slash are continuing to work on some pretty cool projects yeah. so obviously there's yeah. uh divinity original sin 2 which we've kind of hinted at a few different points there uh, what was that like to be getting on board with that? Obviously, you you lobbied for the original game to be Game of the Year, so um, you obviously looked at the franchise in a very fond way, uh, and now all of a sudden you're working on the successor to that title. So what was that like at first? Incredible. Did you, like, did you know when the, you were talking to Sven, did you know that Original Sin 2 was what was next and what they were working on, or you had no idea what you were getting into? No, I, I knew. I knew and uh, was very excited about that. I mean, I think I think at that point the game had been announced and everything, so I knew what I would be doing. Um, and I and uh, by the time I got there, early access wasn't released, I think, but it was soon to be released, if I remember things correctly. But yeah. uh, I got there, and it was it was just amazing to walk in, and and see this room full of people for the first time, people that I. You know, I now have grown to really love and, and respect and adore, and uh, and and I got right, to, I, I got to work right away. Like at first, you have to you have to learn new tools and you know design tools and writing tools and and kind of everything that goes into the actual process. But at that point, you know, we had already a fantastic editor all ready to go, a dialogue editor that had been created specifically for Divinity Original Sin Two. Um, I mean, original Sin One was all written basically in script, um, so the writers yeah, okay. didn't even have a you know have a a tool like we have now. Right now, we have a very visual oriented tool where you just create nodes of dialogue and connect them at the you know a branching tool, you know, kind of like a a super twine, if you will, for oh, people yeah, okay. that yeah, use I'm twine, with you. So, sort of like that. Um, in some ways, Hel- more... helps visualize those dots being connected. Exactly. Um, and it's a fantastic tool that's always being improved even now. And uh, so it didn't take actually a lot of learning. Uh, probably one of the hardest things about actually writing in an editor like that and writing in a game like that is actually keeping track of all the, the switches and buttons that you're letting players hit when they're making choices in those dialogues. Uh, so, uh, you know, things that we that we think of as flags and tags essentially so tags being reactive things to choices 
um, that typically are made at the beginning of the game. So, for example, if you play uh, Divinity Original Sin 2 and you play as an elf, elf is a tag. And so that's one of the first things you kind of got to come to grips with is uh, what tags are attached to a particular player so that you can react to things like... In the correct way. Yeah, so to, to race, gender, um, and things like that. Um, yeah. Flags, on the other hand, are similar, except they relate to events that happen in the game. Uh, it, it Choices that players make as they play. So, for example... If I decide I'm going to kill someone or let them live, um, that's going to set a flag. Every quest has a flag and so on and so forth. And so, you know, one of the hardest things to kind of get to grips with in, in writing a dialogue isn't actually the the writing so much as the design aspect of it. You know, how, how are you going to react to the decisions that have been made? And uh, that stuff can get really, really complicated because you might have... Yeah, various combinations and permutations that are coming together all at once yeah and suddenly you've got like a you know a big web of things um that this dialogue works one way in this scenario in this way in another scenario you know even individual lines that react to something that's come before you know stuff that players may not necessarily know it's the kind of thing where a players notice it only if it goes wrong yeah you know what i mean like it's 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 that kind of thing. Like like, if it's done well, you you want players to take it for granted. You want players to notice and feel powerful, right? Um, because the game is is reacting. Pardon me, is reacting to them. But on the other hand, you want it to feel smooth. You don't want you know you want players to feel like it's it's natural. Um, so if you do it well enough, um, hopefully it can do both. It can make players feel good. Um, that the world is reacting to them, but it can also feel sort of seamless in that way. Um, but that, it's super hard to get it perfect. I don't know that anybody ever gets it perfect. Um, but we, Oh, there's we, always something to learn. There's always little yeah. mistakes that might be made. That's that's the nature of the beast, especially, again, when there's so many uh, webs or heading in different directions and co- yeah, combinations and permutations of so many different things coming together at once. So. It's- Especially in a systemic game. Like, DOS and DOS 2 are incredibly systemic games. And BG3, obviously Baldur's Gate 3. They're very systemic games. So eventually, you know, you you have to figure out how to tell a story um, in a a game where you can basically let players do anything. And those things are quite often at odds with each other. And so you just, you got to you got to decide where you're going to pick your battles and where you're going to draw your lines. And then just as a writer, it can be heartbreaking to realize that players can break everything that you poured your heart and soul into. <laughs> and then eventually you make your peace with it, right? You have to realize that uh, players are going to murder your darlings as, uh, as I might say. Yeah. It's, and, and yeah, it's not, it's not pretty. Yeah. That happens. Like in DOS two, there are very few characters that you can't just outright kill. And eventually you have to realize that your story is going to be broken if players really want to stretch the limits that far and you just kind of got to go along with it. Yeah, so how do you determine <laughs> at that point who who is a lock, who must remain here and who else is ultimately, whether we like or not, 
expendable? Well, it's <laughs> a good question. And expendable is a very harsh word, of course, but I think I think you know what I mean there. I mean, every story begins with with the outline of how of of the, the basic thread of what that main path is going to be, right? And you have to determine what is absolutely imperative to keep for this main path. So when I look at something like DOS 2, the characters that I think of that aren't really killable, there are three of them that I can think of off the top of my head. One, did you play DOS 2 by any chance? Uh, yeah, I've played Yeah, I've played it, played it in full. Okay. Uh, so now, I don't, I, I don't won't necessarily speak to our listeners, of course, but... Uh, sure. Uh, so spoilers if we, ahead. If we need, we can say spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah. so spoiler alert. Um, let's call it spoiler alert for the next five minutes. <laughs> just, to, just to play it yeah, safe. Yeah, we'll play it safe. We'll yeah. hit you a bit. So, uh, so, player, so there are three, three characters that you can't really kill that I can think of. There might be others, but I think there are only three. One of them is, is Dallas. Um, if, you, if you figure it out um, in the first possibility of fighting with her and trying to kill her if you really do manage it's one of the hardest things to do if you even really do manage to try to get her down to like no health she turns into a dragon and flies off so that's all right okay that's one so but definitely didn't get that fast yeah oh no most (laughs) players will never see anything like that um but you know you have to you have to deal with edge cases an edge case being something would have like if a player does something out of an uh, in an order that is not necessarily the prescribed order that you want them to, you have to be ready for stuff like that. And so yeah. that stuff's always called an edge case. You know, what do you do in, in this scenario, in this scenario? It's like, what if you do if somebody tries to kill Dallas and actually succeed? Like, it's actually like killing the, f- the first big boss in Dark Souls or something, right? Like, uh, it's something that, that most people aren't going to do. Um, you know, but the there's tutorial a small percentage boss. that might. Right, yeah. but there are some people that will, and you got to be ready for it. So that's kind of that. There's there's uh, Alexander, who is uh, Lucian's son, and yes. you you fight him in a big boss fight at the end of the first act of DOS two, um, but he also escapes, and he is he is unkillable. I believe, at least for a while. There might actually be a place where you can kill him. Come to think of it, so maybe I'm wrong on that. But listeners, uh, if, if you've if you've successfully <laughs> uh, gotten the kill there, just again let us know alongside uh, what game got the 1.0 review as well. Yeah, <laughs> um, and then the third is Malady. Um, she yes. is she is unkillable most of the way through the game. I think all the way through the game. Actually, I think she's absolutely unkillable. Um. I can't actually say that Dallas is unkillable because eventually you can kill Dallas. But what I what I mean by that is for for the you know for the main before you're supposed to yeah. yeah. So so but but those are always exceptions for us. Um, there are some times where you just have to be ready, um, and and just kind of you got to keep some glue there. You can't let everything be torn apart. Um, Did you have uh, any characters along the way that ultimately don't fit in this group that we've just discussed that you were just trying to constantly find ways no i can save them i can save them i can save them i want to keep this person here was there anyone in particular that really fell into that camp for you it can be really sad to see an npc an npc or a player character because you can you can kill your companions if you want to right as long as they're yep 
you know, even if they're players, you can you can fight each other if you decide you want to. Um, in fact, that that there, there's you know the story works with that kind of ability um, to kind of pit players against each other if you're playing in multiplayer. But uh, there are some NPCs that it kind of can break your heart to see, and a lot of that comes down to to how you balance things because. So there's a character named Gareth, and I wrote Gareth, and I like Gareth a lot, but he's he only really honestly becomes interesting if you keep him alive into the second act. However, you meet Gareth in a battle, and there was a time when Gareth just fell all the time in battle. And for a lot of players, he does, and they never get to see his story even play out, Um but uh, there was a time, and, and sometimes you do have to fight to say, can we please make this a, this fight a little bit different so that the NPC has a greater chance of to survive? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and there, there are other characters out there, too, where you just kind of, kind of hope that players decide to keep them alive for whatever reason. Um, one of the most infamous things in DOS 2 is this fight in a place called the Black Pits. And... Yep. Basically, it's an it's it in development we call it the oil fields, but essentially there are these oil blobs um, all in that area, and you set something on fire in that area, and basically the whole place is just just erupts erupts yeah. in flame, and you're trying as best you can to keep alive a character there named Gwydion. Who is who's basically uh, about to be executed um, by a friend of Gareth, as it turns out? Or if you killed this friend of Gareth earlier, uh, a, uh, another character. Yeah. But uh, but I want people so desperately to keep Gwydion Rince alive, just so that they can see the end of the story. Yeah, because there's this whole thing when you when you go through that area leading up to it where you where you meet a family who was kind of keeping him safe because he's on the run and this family is basically also being executed um for harboring a criminal and so there's this whole thing where you really really i really want people to see it through to see some semblance of happy ending in this quest um and there are not a lot of people that will eventually see the happiest ending, which is that everybody in the family lives as well as Gwydion live. Like, that is a really so that is hard actually thing. Possible. It is actually possible, yes. Okay, right. Um, I mean, when you get there, there's already to try again. There's always one person that's dead um, yep. when you arrive at the scene. But it is absolutely possible to keep the entire family alive and to save Gwydion and to reunite them. I'll have to take it for another speed. But it's really hard to do. That happen. <laughs> and I wish it were a little bit easier, but gosh darn it, Edward, who is our combat designer, he really made <laughs> he really made that <laughs> combat super, super hard. And it's probably DOS 2's most infamous combat scenario is is the whole black pit area, um, with its big fiery mess. Ah, oh, still, that's that's really cool, and uh, really cool. there's an extra challenge there for players to go and pursue if you wish to. So, yeah. from there, and, and cycling back to what we discussed at the very beginning of the episode, you spoke about how Baldur's Gate was a fairly big deal to you as you were as you were kind of consuming games purely as a consumer. 
Yeah. So when did you first learn that Baldur's Gate 3 was going to be a thing that you were going to get an opportunity to work on? And how did that impact you? Oh my God, it was incredible that that moment. Um, I think that there had been some some little rumors spreading through the office maybe, but Sven is really good at dealing with the business side of stuff and keeping us, keeping like people who are actually developing the game and, and whatever, like just kind of doing their thing, right? So, yeah. you know, there was DLC and other stuff, but uh, there was an announcement um, that this is what we were going to be working on. And very soon after the full release of DOS 2, and, uh, you know, the whole place just erupts. It's like, oh my god, I can't believe it. Um, And so there's this moment where it's like, wow. And you start, or at least I started looking back on on kind of my whole gaming life at that stage. You know, know, I look back that first time I saw Baldur's Gate 1 in a giant box sitting on a shelf in Micro Center. Um, and buying it and playing it for the first time. And then, and then that moment, you know, where all these years later, I mean, everything. Did you up, ever think there'd be a third core temple entry? I'd hoped. Um, I mean, eventually it, it always seems like it's, it's, it's going to happen. And there, there was a long time where there just weren't, you know, D and D video games. Um, but, yes. it, but it felt like, you know, it felt like there'd been a real, uh, you know, kind of a resurgence of, uh, of of D&D in recent years anyway. And the Wizards felt, you know, Wizards of the Coast felt like there was, a, you know, a resurgence of what they were doing. And uh, I don't know, there comes a time where you don't really think about it, especially because I work at a, you know, I, I, I work at a studio that didn't work with other people's IPs. You know what I mean? Like they, they made yeah, their own, own stuff, you know, and, and, you know, certainly it's amazing to think of, you know, looking back, you know, you know, I remember buying, I remember where I bought Baldur's Gate 1, and I remember buying Divinity, Divine Divinity from an EB Games at Tyson's Corner Center uh, in Virginia, and then going to the food court and eating lunch while I'm reading the manual and looking at the box <laughs> and stuff. And so, you know... It, Been there it, and done that. Yeah, it's amazing to, to think, oh my God, you know, who would have thought... You know, you know, twenty-some-year-old Kevin, you know, wouldn't have thought in a million years that uh, he'd get a chance to then be making a Work game on one of these. in this universe. Um, but then to be at Larian and then realize, oh, I'm going to get to be part of um, another historic game in, in Baldur's Gate Three. You know, you just you don't see it coming. Um, but then when you, you know, I, I found out, and it's just like let's let's rock this. You know. So did you, you obviously mentioned there was some rumors and speculation. Had you heard those rumors at that particular point or, and were you, were you kind of dismissive of them? Like surely not, or uh, where, where were you at? Did you, did you actually hear those rumors in the first place? Uh, gosh, I don't even, I don't even really remember. Uh, I, I think so. Yes. But I think a lot of that just comes down to, you know, a studio is finished making what it's making. What's going to happen next? You know, it's hey, maybe yep. we could make the next Baldur's Gate or something, and usually that kind of stuff ends up being a being a joke as we wait to see what what really does come next for the studio. And I've always, you know, kind of held out. You know, you, you kind of think maybe it'll be Divinity Original Sin three, 
you know, I'd, I'd always kind of hoped that we'd return to Dragon Commander, um, you know, or maybe, you know, make a 3D game, uh, another 3D kind of style RPG. Yeah. Um, like uh, Divinity 2, not to be confused with Original Sin 2, they're different games. Um, but you kind of you kind of think, hey, maybe we'll do something like that, or maybe you know a brand new universe, you know, because we're working with the mind of Sven, and Sven is nothing if not full of ideas all the time, you know. And after making Original Sin two, and it's so successful, you know, we're in a stage where hey, we can do whatever, you know, we'll do whatever we want, whatever whatever strikes our fancy, because what Sven makes is the game Sven wants to play. And that's what's... Yeah, I mean, like for me, you know, obviously just as a consumer and sitting completely on the outside of uh, outside of the studio, I, you know, played uh, Original Sin two, uh, loved it, and I just thought, okay, the the next the next logical thing from here is that we're going to see a third title, and uh, time zones being what they are, it was the it was a horrible time in the morning when the announcement of uh, Baldur's Gate three actually emerged, so I. I wasn't privy to it live. I wasn't, no, there was nothing like that. I woke up the next morning, I checked my YouTube feed and I just started scrolling down the, uh, scrolling down the list there only to see Baldur's Gate, Gate 3 written there and I nearly fell off my bed. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I couldn't Surprise. believe what I was seeing. Like, sure, surely this is, um, I think it might have been, uh, I probably would have been like an IGN or a GameSpot or someone that was that had shared the video. I thought, surely this is a prank. Hang on, it's not April 1st, is it? Um checking through all that and to discover that it's true there's a trailer here this is a real thing oh larian's working on it okay um that makes sense but i would never have thought in a million years that this was going to happen surprise it was yeah it was <laughs> exactly <laughs> surprise and trying I, to wrap my head around that and i think we did a really good job of like i don't i don't know that there were you know that anybody had a clue as to what we were doing and we've been working on it obviously for quite a while and i i remember very specifically um, going into uh, very early, you know, in pre-production where, you know, talks were going on about what the story was going to be and, and that sort of thing. You know, I remember that a bunch of us, got, you know, got together in a, you know, in a, in a hotel meeting room um, here in the, here in the city. And it was just a bunch of people just sitting around a, a big desk hashing out what this was going to be. And it was so much fun to do that kind of thing because I hadn't been there for that that aspect of things for DOS too, and so it was a lot of fun kind of being there from the beginning and seeing the actual pre-production um, of of how a game comes to be um, before anybody has actually touched a single thing inside a, an editor, you know, just just being there in rooms, being there yeah, from for square break. one, yeah, from square one. That was that was a lot of fun. Especially getting to see Sven work in that way and to really understand how he's got such a good handle on on what's fun and what's exciting and what people really love about RPGs. Like I said, we just make we make the games Sven wants to play, and as it turns out, Sven wants to play really good games. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a nice little luxury and a nice yeah, uh, point yeah. of convenience there. So as we obviously progressed through development now we're uh, we're talking early you know access to to the public at this at this point in various different capacities what's that been like is this gradual build towards that point with presumably a lot of um 
a little a bit, bit of pressure you're putting on yourself because yeah. obviously there's this history that you have with the franchise. <laughs> there's there's pressure coming from external sources, whether it's wizards, whether it's uh, just other people within the studio, whether it's the public themselves. What's that been like to grapple with? Scary sometimes, but not too much. I mean, when you're working on it, you're just in the zone, right? You know, you're not yeah, necessarily okay. thinking about uh, I mean, obviously, yes, you're thinking about, I hope people like this. I hope people connect with this. But most of the time, you're just hoping that the thing that you're doing in that moment is is as good as it can be. And yep. uh, game development is nothing if not heartbreaking all the time. Because sometimes <laughs> you have to scrap something that's not working. Um, or sometimes you, you have to, you know, return to something that you did and re- redo it in this way or that way or, or another way. And you're just and constantly- some of those things you've really formed an attachment with too. At that point, yes, you scrap them or have to kind of rework them in some way. Of course, um, but uh, th- that lesson was kind of learned in DOS too about again, like murdering darlings. You know, you have to be willing to let players murder your darlings, and you have to be willing to murder your own. And uh, so there comes a point where you you need that emotional attachment if you're going to make if you're going to make the game feel. Uh, authentic to what you're doing um but you also have to be willing to let go when you know that it's just not working for whatever reason i always think about when valve talks about like the first half-life 2 trailer there's this whole thing where a tentacle comes out of the water and flashes around and apparently that was a whole thing it was eventually taken out and they talk they talk about that you know in postmortems and stuff where it's like but it just wasn't fun and so you just got to be ready to say Okay, this is a really cool idea on paper, but it's not fun. Just not working. Yeah, and eventually you just got to say, nope, got to scrap it. And that's that's obviously always super heartbreaking, but... Uh, yeah, I was going to say, it tears you up inside a little bit. A little bit, but uh, not too much Not too much anymore, especially when there are certain things that you just know are going to be forever things, um, such as some of our characters. One of, the, one of the biggest things coming out of this for me... Um, in a positive way is uh, so I'm writing a character named Lizel, uh, yep. who is a who is a Githyanki warrior. Uh, Githyanki being uh, a race of beings that probably to most people in Farron, who which is where the game takes place, the uh, the continent where the game takes place. To most people there, she's she's basically an alien, right? Yeah. Okay. And. Uh, we're, Writing Lizelle has been the most, probably the most incredible thing about uh, about making Baldur's Gate three for me. And uh, at this stage, she, you know, I think most writers will understand this. Like, you get to a point where it doesn't feel like you're making a character say things. The character just says things to you, and you write them down. Is kind of yeah, because you get yourself in that that headspace. Yeah. And you start to pro- they project to you yeah. as opposed to you project for them. And I know I'm always having a bad writing day if I feel like I'm putting words in Lizelle's mouth because that's not the way it's supposed to go. It's supposed to be the other way around. She's supposed to be the one talking and I'm just her conduit. And at this stage, Lizelle and I are just one. <laughs> if Completely for the, in for sync. For the most part. We're almost, we're, we're probably 90% in sync. And so... In a particular circumstance, I typically know exactly how Lizelle's going to respond. I know the kind of way she speaks. Um, and, you know, she, she says things that I could never in a million years say out loud. But she is incredible and awful 
and I love her more than anything. And I'm also writing a character named Will that I absolutely adore and love. And I think that he will... He'll change, he's going to go out there and change the world. And Lizelle's going to go out there and change the world. And I'm just proud of my babies, I guess. So That's uh, fantastic to hear. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully people connect with them. Um, you, you just never know. But one of the great things has been people watching the trailers and people watching gameplay on YouTube and, and, and what we've shown and whatnot. Um, there's already, like, I already get fan art of Lizelle, uh, oh, that's to awesome. me, and there's already been erotic fan art of Lizelle. Of and course I, and there I has been. already know more <laughs> is coming. See, with DOS 2, this existed, but there's something, you know, DOS 2, we have the top-down perspective, and there was never really a cinematic, and I think that now that we've got you know, we've got close-up cinematic dialogues when you're talking with Gives characters. Gives people a much clearer look at the characters, yeah. and they can get all the more imaginative. Exactly. And now there's real, just super visual connections with these characters. And I think it's just going to spawn so much incredible stuff, and I can't wait to see it, because it's probably the best part of what I do, is getting people so connected with, with the characters that we write that they want to pick up their stories and pick up their personalities and run with them and do whatever they want. You know what I say? I say, go for it. Um, there was, I'll give you a little story about DOS 2 that kind of gives you an idea. So I got a message once. There, there's a character in DOS 2 named Riker that I wrote. And, yes. and Riker is uh, this, this dude that lives in a big mansion in a graveyard. And... Riker is incredible, but you only go, you know, when you're writing a big game, you only go so far with backstories, right? So, you know, we have, we basically know the entire lives of the biggest characters, and typically those are the player characters um, and the companion characters. You know, you only dig so deep, you know, you're only establishing, like, uh, basic you know, basic tenets and sometimes, you know, maybe a couple years of life, if that, for, for certain characters. And Riker went so far and then no further for me in, in a certain sense. Like, I didn't have an entire life story build up for Riker. Um, I had some, but not, you know... You had some not, key I, ten poles yeah, and that's I, about it. Yeah, key ten poles and that's about it for, for Riker. And I got a message one time from somebody so connected to Riker and they wanted to know... As much as I could tell them, and there were so many specific questions, and I was like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> and, you know, I realized that the intent was I want to know as much as I can so I can write some cool fan fiction about this. And I was, the, the, best, the best part of that was saying, make it your own. You yeah, know, they, they've got an opportunity to paint within the lines at that point. Yeah, it's like uh, what, what you see is basically what you get. And I can tell you some information about the backstory. You you need to know something about your characters, right? Like you can't you can't just go um, you can't go in blind necessarily, but uh, you can't give the novels worth of of lore treatment to every single every single person you write, or you'll never or you'll never make up your thing. You never get the project done. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, it's just like go out, make Riker your own. Um, and I can't wait to see what people do with. 
with our characters in Baldur's Gate 3. Like, especially, like I said, Lysel is very, very near and dear to my heart, and I can't wait to see what people do with the parts of her story that, you know, that I haven't filled in or have yet to be filled in. You know, go for it. I mean, there are, there are parts of it, you know, you won't, you meet her at a certain stage of her life, and there is going to be stories of battles and her upbringing before that and i don't want to give anything away um but she comes from a very in she grew up in a very interesting place in a very interesting circumstance and i think people taking that and realizing how much uh imagination they can apply to to the things that might have happened in lizelle's life before you meet her it's gonna be incredible i can't wait to see it so when you get people that have, as we kind of put it before, they've they've coloured between the lines, they've they've kind of fleshed out that fan fiction or whatever. Do you, do you pour through that and then say, oh, geez, I wish I wish I, I wish I thought of that or you know came up with that or all the time? Does, does that kind of start to form a little bit of your <laughs> your narrative around that character as well? Like I'll, I'll pull on these threads because that actually makes a lot of sense and I really like that. That's, oh yeah, of course. It starts to build your own version of that character. Of course. Despite the fact that you were part of the initial conception of that character anyway. Oh, of course. I mean, I don't own Lizel. You know what I mean? Like yep. she is, she is a, she is a collaborative being and I might be the conduit through which she speaks, but, uh, you know, I definitely do not own her and I'll get like, I'll give you a, an example that's that's meaningful and daily um, at this stage of development, which is voice acting. Um, so, Lizelle may be, you know, may be her words might be coming from me somehow, um, but who she is is also informed by an incredible actress. Um, yes named Devorah Who Wild. has their own perspective and has their own take and, yeah, and their own inflections. She's amazing. And, and you know, just the acting is just like the writing. Sometimes, you know, you, you start in and you're getting a feel for things and eventually you go back and you tweak based on who the character eventually has become. And the voice acting is a big part of that. You know, not only has she gone back to, you know, to, to re-record the, the stuff from the beginning... Now that we have a better handle on who Lizel is, but who Lizel is um, from the writing perspective at this stage is very much informed by what the actress has done with her. Like, uh, yeah, so there's then this partnership that's starting to build, and you, the two of you are working together to kind of f- flesh out this character even more. Yeah, and I've never, I've never met Devora. I hope I'm even saying her name right. It could be Devora for all I know. <laughs> But uh, she's, you know, we, we're still in collaboration because then the lines come through when I hear how she's delivered them. And I'm like, okay, how she's delivering it definitely informs the things that I write. And then eventually, like, a full-fledged Lizelle, like, kind of comes out of that. You know, it's like we've got this wordless collaboration, you know, at least between us, you know, this you know, this, this kind of collaboration, even though we've never spoken. Um, and yet this Lizelle arises out of that. And that's, that's incredible to me. That's really fascinating as an outsider looking into that. That's, that's really quite cool to hear. Yeah. And it's, I mean, some of it's planned obviously, because, you know, we, there's casting done for getting exactly the right 
the right actor for every part and uh you know in the in the studio you're always looking for the right writer to to write a particular character and so on and so forth and and so a lot of it really is just sort of the magic of the thing you know you get the right writer you get the right uh actress and suddenly you've got this full-fledged uh person partnership yeah and and just this person that arises in in the game kind of you know out of hard work obviously but then all of that stuff together kind of like this bubbly magic that that comes out of it and suddenly you realize people are really into this character (laughs) and and to get these messages i mean that'll continue too yeah like so i i know we've got limited time but this 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 little lizel thing that i love which is that uh, we, we showed this scene in, uh, in a goblin camp in Baldur's Gate 3. And the scene that we showed is, is essentially a goblin asks you to kiss his foot. Um, so as a player, your whole thing... Noble thing. Yeah, noble thing. So your <laughs> player in this side how you want to react. Like, are you, willing to, are you willing to grovel to a goblin in order to get what you want out of it. And, you know, we throw in some little things here and there to make it even more tempting, like there's a ring on his foot. Do you want to try to maybe go and kiss his foot, but also try to steal the ring kind of thing? So, but a lot of the feedback after that, because people are in love with Lizelle, even at this stage, is, man, I would love to kiss Lizelle's foot. And 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 I read stuff like this, and I'm like... Whoa! People are really getting into this. The investment. Yeah, people are already invested in this character, um, just because. And and I didn't even mention like the visuals, like our incredible artists, um, you know, putting you know, and and technicians putting this character together, um, and our cinematic artists that make her move so beautifully, and you know, all of it is this this collaboration where you just see this character living on screen and that that's that's really incredible and obviously in dos 2 you know we made that happen but now you know with these you know with a, with a cinematics team that we didn't have before because we just didn't have this kind of this this level of um of visual you know authenticity now with their faces yep. just right there jesus christ there's it's, so much more amazing. you can convey yeah it's it's just amazing uh, to see it come to life and scary because you want to live up to players expectations even more yeah that's that's really fascinating and i'm having yeah having spent a lot of time with uh original sin and the sequel and then inevitably when the time comes we'll we'll take uh Baldur's gate 3 for a spin i can't wait to kind of see that difference and the things that you kind of described there actually be able to experience it myself and and really take in those differences because it's 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 really fascinating to hear the approach and how that's developing as more and more people get involved and these various different teams get involved along the way. Yeah, it's it's scary too because people, you know, people that played the originals have different things that they get out of it. Like uh, one of the one of the first things that comes out is you know oh you're doing turn based. We were really hoping that it would be you know um, real time pause and. Yeah. On one hand, as a player, I get that because those are those are people that have connected with the game in a very particular way. Um, but 
the kind of that combat style was never really what Baldur's Gate was to me, if that makes sense. Like Baldur's Gate yeah, to me was was about, you know, adventure and place and character and and you know, the way the way the combat really worked was was always fun for me, but it was never like this is why I'm coming to this place, if that makes sense. And I really hope that what people get out of what we've done is 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 the same kind of thing where it's like the particulars may be different, but in the end, you know, you just want people to come away with that same emotion. You know, it's like, oh my god, I'm 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 experiencing this incredible adventure and going to amazing places and there are amazing, interesting characters doing it with me along the way. Yeah, and I mean I I'm really hopeful that uh, it all comes together in the way that you kind of envisage and that people are taking that that same uh, impression from their their time with the game. Yeah, me too. So as we begin to wind things down, we'll, we'll cycle back a little bit to you and kind of maybe some bigger picture sort of stuff. Uh, is there anyone out there that you've worked with or alongside or even that you just look at from afar that really inspires you and in the way you approach your work, whether that was uh, in the GameSpot days through the media or uh, even more currently since you've gotten into the development scene? Oh, God, I, I, I always hesitate with stuff like that because I don't want to leave anybody out because everybody's had such a an incredible impact in some way. Um, I'd say from the GameSpot days, um, Greg Kasavin, um, from the writing perspective, he was always somebody that I looked up to through this entire process. And we've, you know, we've talked many a time, you know, over the years, because of course he's gone on to Supergiant Games to help make Bastion. And yes. Transistor. Doing very well for himself. And now Hades and made all these wonder, you know, these wonderful things um, that I look up to. And so his path was one I always looked up to as a you know as a critic and a writer and then as a as a developer and a writer and as a designer like this is somebody whose whose path you know my own has mirrored a little bit and so i feel really connected to so yes he's always been in you know greg kasavan always an inspiration to me uh alex navarro as being the person who really took a chance and said yes this guy really needs to be on the editorial team and really being my first real big mentor at GameSpot. Um, moving on later, um, Carolyn Pettit, who was a fellow editor at GameSpot, she really helped open my eyes to different ways of thinking about games and different ways about writing about games. That stuff was really important to me as, as I kind of got out of the mode of games are a product like a car and you should write about them like that. Um, and helps me move on to something more than that, that games are, you know, art, games reflect our world, games reflect our politics, and games are our emotions, and helps me find a way to write from a more authentic place from inside me. She really helped make that happen. Um, that's fantastic yeah and moving on uh i think of somebody like will cook at try on worlds who was really i'm really grateful for somebody like Catherine vu at try on worlds who uh who really saw me through some uh some times during that time and helped me feel more confident about uh moving ahead with what i was doing and just was a really great friend and then 
Sven. What do you say about somebody like Sven Vinka at Larian who took a chance on me and hopefully I've I've helped make him proud and, and helped make DOS 2 and Baldur's Gate 3 great things that people uh, love to play. And I have uh, no doubt you have. Yeah, and, and then Rich uh, Siegel at Cleaversoft um, and Earth Knight and also taking a chance on me and uh, saying, you know, I think this guy that was at GameSpot really knows what he's talking about when it comes to making fun games, and then let me and then let me prove it. So, all of those people. Yeah, I mean that that's that's fantastic to hear that you've been surrounded by so many fantastic people over the journey that have really helped uh, inform multiple dis- different disciplines, as we spoke about before. It's not just uh, games media; it's not even just writing. It's uh, there's the the design aspect as well that you've you've explored a whole bunch of different facets and to have been surrounded by so many really great people yeah totally that have really helped steer you and guide you and support you has been awesome so in the event that you're having a rough day maybe you're it's that 10 percent that you're talking about where you can't quite get yourself in the right headspace you're out of sync with the character how, how do you get over that what get what gets you through do you have any really fond memories that you look back upon that kind of help yeah, help get you through. Well, sometimes you just got to do it, right? Like, I can't sit around waiting for the inspiration to strike. Like, uh, writing is still a job, and you just got to you just gotta shove yourself into it. And actually, that's sometimes when you get the most work, is like you're under deadline, you're, you're, you're working as hard as you can, because then it almost forces you to get into that space. Like, it's like you're being yes. squeezed into it um, by outside forces. And that, that actually can work really, really well. But there are times... Um, one thing that I did before, uh, you know, during development, and I've actually linked these on my Twitter since since then, now that the game was announced, is I actually have Spotify playlists for both Will and Lizelle. And oh, awesome. when I'm writing <laughs> either one of them, now I'm a bit, now I mentioned before that my education was in classical music and composition and violin performance. And so classical music is still really close to my heart. And it's basically the music that I listen to all the time. And so I have a huge mental bank of, of music that I can draw from that, that fit these characters pretty well. And so I just basically created Spotify playlists um, that, that I'll listen to if I really need to get into a headspace. Um, Will's got one and Lizelle's got one. That's, that's a really good way of looking at it and an awesome way of embracing that, uh, that musical side that from everything we've kind of spoken about in terms of your, your media work or the game design and, and uh, writing work there, you haven't necessarily been able to tap into in the same capacity as various other skills. Yeah, and one of the scripters too will actually, when, when she is scripting either something, she's like my main Lizelle scripter. So she and I basically, she's, oh my God, Mariko, hi, out there in, uh, in, our, in our Quebec studio. She's uh, the scripter for most of Lizelle's things. And so yeah, okay. she's, she's a big part of that collaboration too. And uh, she, she also will listen to these playlists when she needs to get in the mood, when she's, when she's scripting their situations. That, no, that, so, that's awesome to have that support again. Yeah, so uh, I don't, you know, sometimes, you know, to get an idea, to give... For example, the casting, uh, an idea for what you're kind of looking for in a character in the in the voice acting. Sometimes they'll ask for like a clip um, of something that already exists out there of like kind of what this character is like. But the neat Just some sort of frame of reference. Yeah, but the neat thing about and and his writers will do that too. Sometimes we'll have 
you know, just like artists use reference. Sometimes, you know, writers will sort of use reference for like, here's the rough idea I was going for. But the neat thing about Lizelle and Will is that they've they've moved well outside of of that space, I guess for me. It's like now they're their own things. There's no you know, there's no reference for Lizelle. I have no idea who Lizelle is like. If you were to say, name another character that's like Lizelle, I don't know, Lizelle's Lizelle. You know, yeah, Will, makes a lot of sense. Will is Will. And so uh, the inspiration And that, that's I also get is, a perk of probably knowing them on such a deep level as well. Yeah, totally. And so the inspiration I get usually isn't, isn't you know, sometimes it's artistic, it's visual, or it's music, but it's, it's not really any more like, oh, I'm getting inspiration from a, a character from a novel or a character from a film or anything like that. Like my inspirations definitely outside sources, um, outside of, outside of writing. Yeah. Great. So last, uh, before we deal with kind of social media and the game and where people can kind of go to, to learn more about it. One last curly question for you. And yeah. you've, you've discussed a whole host of different games that you've really loved and adored over the years. But if there was one game out there that you could retroactively add your name into the credits to for being responsible for any particular aspect, you can just be receiving special thanks if that's all you'd like. One game that you could retroactively add yourself in as being responsible for in some way, what game would it be? Oh, my God. Yeah, question oh, me that notice. Oh, my gosh. Too many to count, almost. Like This is this is another one of those cases like before about, uh, you know, I, uh, kill it, killing things that you love and that sort of thing. This is yeah. this is going to be one of those because there's one left standing here. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Assassin's Creed Two. Oh really? Okay. Well, what's what is it about that? So I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I love the game myself, but what what is it about that one? So well, number one, I have an Assassin's Creed tattoo because I've always felt pretty connected to that series um, for for quite a period of time and and especially the earlier games in that series i feel real real fondness for and i think with assassin's creed 2 i think that it's just like one was you know the groundwork has been laid we've got the the engine and we've got the technology and we've got kind of a a development pipeline for this and so i think being part of the development pipeline for Assassin's Creed 2 would have been kind of amazing, not just from a, a writing and design perspective, because that game, whether we really think about it this way or not, was the start of what would become the Ubisoft structural... Yeah, model. <laughs> model, yeah. Um, that, that was really the, you know, this is the kind of map you're working with and the kind of way you, you navigate sort of it navigate the map and the sort of way you uh interact with the kind of game we make i feel like that was assassin's creed 2 was really sort of the beginning of that but because it was early on it still had this sense of adventure and of wondering what was around the corner and anything can happen in the story and there was also this sort of fascinating interplay between story, gameplay, and music, the kind of thing that I really, really love. And so that, I, I would say that's why I would I would sort of choose uh, Assassin's Creed 2 as that for me, I guess. It's no, a fantastic choice. Also fantastic a dream choice. series to work on 
in a way, because I have so many ideas of what Assassin's Creed could be, if you know what I mean. And, and you know that they, yep. they've all sat around a table dreaming up the most crazy possible things. Um, and I truly believe that one day, I truly hope at least, the series will one day return really to its narrative roots and give us an Assassin's Creed Eden. Give us the Assassin's Creed and the Garden of Eden as it was sort of envisioned and as we sort of got glimpses of in Assassin's Creed 2 and Assassin's Creed Brotherhood. Yeah, and we kind of get only teased these days and never really get anything more than that. So it'd be, it'd be fascinating to go back and explore that. I, I agree there. That's what I want is a totally bonkers Assassin's Creed way outside of what we see as its sort of historical uh, sightseeing and make it fantasy sightseeing, pure fantasy sightseeing, and give us a Garden of Eden, give us a biblical kind of thing. Yeah, really lean into it. Really lean into that. Um, I mean, because otherwise you either get modern day or you get Assassin's Creed in space. And so... so Yeah, we're getting there, aren't we? (laughs) So I'd really... (laughs) Not many places left to go. Yeah, I'd really rather see, like, an Assassin's Creed Eden. Um, it's It's my dream in that series. And so maybe that's also why I kind of chose Assassin's Creed too, is like, you kind of like, this is the dream where, you know, that kind of stage was being set. And how, I mean, who's, who's to say you won't get to work on it one day, maybe, maybe one day. But the thing is, I'm so incredibly ecstatic to be where I am. That that's, that's just like, uh, I don't know. I, I don't even want to call it a daydream, just day thinking, you know, what would have, what would it be like if, but honestly, I'm already in the best of all possible dimensions. So yeah, so let, let's just appreciate what we've got exactly. and uh, whatever happens, happens. I suppose. Yeah, pretty much. So Kevin, thank you very much for for coming on board the show, sharing your story and the adventure so far. There's so much still to come uh, involving Baldur's Gate three, and who knows what is to come after that. If people want to reach out to you, uh, chat with you, learn more about what you're up to, learn more about the project, uh, obviously being Baldur's Gate 3, where would they be best to go? Well, um, obviously on Twitter, you should follow Larian Studios um, if you want to know more about Baldur's Gate 3, as well as follow Baldur's Gate 3 on Twitter and Facebook and all the places that it, that it shows up and on YouTube and so on and so forth. Um, I think our early access date is uh, September 30th. Um, we, we definitely leave open the idea that there could be delay with that just because it's a game in progress and who's to say... Not to we mention mu- the year we're having. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. Um, you know, there's definitely been a lot of work from home and disruption and things like voice recording schedules and things like that. Um, but me personally, if you want to reach out, uh, the best way to do that is probably on Twitter as well. Um, you can find me as FiddleCub, uh, Fiddle, F-I-D-D-L-E, uh, like a violin, and Cub, C-U-B, uh, like, a, like a young bear. So not Fiddle Club, which happens sometimes. Uh, oh, really? You get a few of those? Yeah, but Fiddle Cub instead. So you can find me on Twitter there. And uh, I, try, I try really hard to respond to people and be responsive. Sometimes it can be hard. Um, but eventually, I, I promise I'll I make my way there. No, I mean, it was it was your openness on social media that allowed this to happen in the first place, and I'm incredibly appreciative of that fact as well. So you are willing to do it, and if anyone does have any questions or wants to chat or anything like that, 
be sure to reach out because you were fantastic to me and I really appreciate all of it. Oh, no problems. I had a lot of fun. I have a lot of fun doing this kind of things. So. Uh, so good luck, as I, as I said before, good luck with everything that's still to come. Uh, as purely an outsider looking in, I'm really fascinated by everything that you've accomplished over the journey. As I mentioned earlier, I've been, you know, reading and watching what you've been up to for years before you got into game development and to see you thriving in this in this particular side of the industry now is really great to see as a, as a fan um and i'm just excited to see what comes next thank you very much and i hope that uh, i i just hope people love what they play it's it's all i really want it's all we can really ask as as consumers or creators in the first place so uh, it's a good way to look at it Thanks. And thanks for having me. Yeah. uh, No, thank you very much for coming on again. And uh, listeners, as always, thank you very much for listening. I'll see you next time. That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share it with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until our next episode, however, that's been Kevin's story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.